thank you everyone for coming today. It's a big story I've got to tell, so I'll, I'll try and thread a path through some of it in um, the next 30 minutes and hope we can have lots of good discussions. And where, where possible, I'll, I'll try and frame it in the context of, of digital news as a whole and, and digital transformation within organisations. Um, because I think if you, if you see virtual reality and many of the issues it, it raises in terms of both organisations creating it and how you reach audiences and distribute it, um, it, it gives you a window onto to many other worlds as well. Um, so today I was going to briefly talk about um, why organisations like the BBC were interested in exploring VR, um, talk you through just very briefly some of the things we were thinking in 2017 when everyone was very excited about virtual reality, um, really following the New York Times's um, going, going first with their virtual reality app. Everyone thought that they should be doing it um, and one of the reasons I wrote this report was to just introduce a little bit of journalistic scepticism about some of the challenges involved um, with virtual reality news. Um, we're going to talk about what makes a good virtual reality story and where we've got to um, with that um, and some reflections on the industry. And because I want to finish on a really high note, I'm going to finish with some great audience research about the true power that watching great content, whether it's news or other content, can really bring through one of these crazy um, headsets. This is the Oculus Go headset. So this is, this is what's called an all-in-one headset, so it doesn't involve um, a big computer um, or graphics card to run it. Um, and these cost about um, $170, um, roughly the same in pounds. And these, these um, were transformational for us in terms of being able to get this out to audiences. Um, and it was these sorts of headsets that um, we really focused our content on. You can do amazing things with virtual reality. You can have experiences where you use haptics, where you have controllers to unlock doors and things like that. But again, the audience you can get to becomes smaller and smaller. The amount of time you have to spend setting up and bug shooting equipment becomes bigger and bigger. So these mobile headsets seemed like a good bet for many um, broadcasters like the BBC. So why VR news and why VR? Well, well what um, the early promise of VR news, um, really pushed by research by people like Professor Mel Slater, who worked with um, Noni de la Peña, who is, is, is the sort of VR news pioneer from California. The idea was that virtual reality put you in the reporter's shoes, especially for foreign reporting, that your audience would stand there and be able to see and understand a situation um, for themselves. And so that was the sort of principle that everyone was excited about. You have a sense of presence in a different place and therefore you can increase understanding of the world and of, of, of situations. Um, it's obviously also being explored um, not just by news and media organisations but for, for medicine, for architecture and design and many other industries. Um, and I think in 2017 I described it as a technology looking for its strongest use cases and it's still that process is, is still ongoing. Um, the BBC was founded in 1922 to inform, educate and entertain audiences across the UK. And at this point, I always think, especially when I go outside the UK, I just remind people it's not, it is the biggest news organisation in the world, but it also has orchestras, um, I think six orchestras still, um, huge amounts of work on education. So we are doing far more than, than just news. And for the virtual reality project I started two years ago, um, we really wanted to harness 
all the strengths of the BBC, um, from, from the, the music it creates um, through education, through science and things like that. It's nine orchestras and choirs I see there. Um, um, so we're, we're far more than just a news organisation, and I think that's, that's been important for virtual reality. Um, so in 2017, I did this report. I went and interviewed people, a lot of people in the US, um, but also um, uh, people at Axel Springer pushing um, VR in Germany. And there was huge enthusiasm at the time. Um, but it did reveal some big challenges, um, especially um, around the technology needing to explore, to um, the technology needing to mature, sorry. Um, what the monetization models for the um, content would be, the fact that there wasn't enough good content, most of it was still very poor and it was hard to find, and that there was very little audience research and understanding of audiences. So on the BBC, for the project I run there, we decided to concentrate on those last two challenges, making decent content, seeing if we could and where it, where it would work, so we explored that across... Um, a variety of genres, but we also wanted to really do a very strategic, insight-based uh, project using lots of audience research. So we commissioned with Ipsos Mori a uh, really groundbreaking piece of ethnographic audience research in 16 households, where they were given um, headsets for and monitored for three months with detailed questionnaires, um, sometimes given content to watch and asked to comment on it, um, but also um, we really explored how they used those headsets over three months and what the problems were. Um, and what we came up with was a, a slightly frightening-looking um, chart which showed huge numbers of friction points in the home. With um, This was an earlier headset than this, one of the ones you had to slot a phone in. But it looks pretty um, difficult um, from the start. They didn't know where to go with their headsets in the home. Um, they, if they lived in a house with other people, they were um, embarrassed about people um, watching them. They didn't know when to watch it. Um, once they decided they found somewhere to watch it, the headset might need cleaning, might not work, might need updating, um, might need charging. Um, they couldn't work out how to use different experiences there because of the varying and poor um, user interaction design on them. Their home Wi-Fi speed may make it impossible to download apps in less than 24 hours, by which time they, they'd had to restart the thing. So there were lots and lots of friction points. Oh, then when they did find something, if it was poorly designed content, it might make them want to be sick and feel really ill. They might get it next spring because it's getting them looking around. And so um, why would you bother going back? So that was our, our challenge. Um, and, um, but we, we did look on it as a challenge that could be solved potentially with decent co content because actually going to the cinema involves quite a lot of challenge. You've got to book a ticket, you've got to get your car out or go on public transport to a cinema. Uh, but we do it because we know we're going to have a really great time. So our assumption was that some of these um, would be um, get better as the technology improved. Um, and that, that, that one of the things that we could prove was that with really rewarding content, um, that, that it, it, it um, might well um, still be worth it. So we focused on great content. I, I had a team of about eight people to work across different divisions of the team of the BBC to create a series of pieces and really focus on content that would make impact. Um, our, we had fairly um, 
strict metrics. We needed to win awards for things. Um, we needed to um, also, we were using the content to really understand in a more detailed way the business challenges and the distribution um, issues for VR. So content became our, our, our way through to see that wider picture and to do some really solid audience research, which I'll turn to later. So um, I'll just show you some of, this is what we did. Some of these pieces have been created in sort of ad hoc projects by the BBC before, but we, we published them and, and turned it into a sort of portfolio. And this will give you the idea of the range of things that we, we, we um, were able to explore through it. Oops. Um, no, it isn't. If I can just work out how to get that playing. It's calling up the rear. Go back. You're pressing the back. Right. It's a back arrow that you're pressing. Yeah, maybe I'll do it on there and try and get the plate. Sorry, I'll do it on here. I can't do it on my, my slides, so... Has that come through yet? Yes, let's do it from there. This close up is a true privilege. We'll be taking you on a great adventure up this magnificent river. We have to hold on to the trolley very tight to make sure we don't fall. We'd created various short um, VR reports, um, um, and um, most of those had been either shown on headset at events and things, or, and also distributed on YouTube. Um, our, our challenge for news um, was to create a really compelling virtual reality series, um, episodic content that would keep people watching and seeing whether we could do that, so a far more sort of epic piece. Um, and so I'd, I'd created some criteria of the sort of thing I was looking for. Um, and sort of waited until the right idea came up. And Alistair Leithhead, the BBC's Africa correspondent, phoned me up and said, I think I've got a really good idea here. And he wanted to, um, there was a strong story behind it. He wanted to explore the impact of the Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia on the geopolitics of um, Sudan and Egypt. And it just seemed to be a perfect fit for VR. Virtual reality with a headset, you can really see the scale of things. So you could see the scale of this huge dam being built. It was going to take you um, on a unique journey down the River Nile as well, um, with Alistair and the news crew team as your companion. Um, and, you know, there would be some serious news, but there would also be some joyful moments that would be take you to places you might not otherwise be able to go, a music festival in Sudan and the pyramids. So you'd find out about the story, but, but in an enjoyable way. And um, it, it proved a really great um, story for, for VR. 
Um, so I'm just going to play you um, the little trailer for that because the scenes, I can't give you all headsets today, I wish I could, but the sort of scenes that are shown in here worked really well on a headset. You fly over a waterfall, um, you see the scale of the dam, and there's one extraordinary scene where um, it was almost an accident. We ended up using the camera as a sort of character because it's a 360 degree camera. Um, and. Um, there's one scene when they were in a, a, a restaurant in Sudan and um, they were sitting chatting to a journalist there and you feel you're at the table and jokingly, Alice has said, um, I'm going to pour you a glass of water, only virtual water. But it really worked in the headset and made um, a lot of people laugh and gave that real sense of being there um, with the team. I've lost my mouse again, sorry. There we go. So this is damming the Nile. You're joining us for a unique journey down the Nile, and we'll show you how a huge dam Ethiopia's building is causing big trouble downstream. positive reaction of the Daily Mail is still unusual for the BBC, so we, we put that there. Um, but I hope you can see from that, it was, it was we, we really, uh, two years ago people have been saying, could you tell stories in VR? Um, we were, uh, we, we did tell a great story with that one, and a story where you really got to be there and be with the crew. We kept the crew as part of the story, that was a, that was a sort of conceit. Um, it enabled us to make the um, films in a cost-effective way, uh, because we also created um, films for the 10 o'clock news, um, a, a news doc for the BBC News Channel. So um, during one of the interviews, you, you sort of see the process of the rest of the news gathering going on. Um, it's become quite common in, in virtual reality documentary making for people to use a lot of compositing to clean up shots. So if, if the crew are in shot, to literally take them out. Um, obviously with news we were very concerned about um, transparency and um, sort of fake news scenarios and so we, we had to sort of keep the crew as part of the story. You are travelling with the crew down the River Nile to uncover this and that seemed to work fine and, and lots, nobody's complained about it and most people found it quite interesting seeing the camera set up also for a, a TV news um, interview if that was incorporated into the story. So after doing the Nile, um, Alistair Leaphead got more ambitious. We, we knew rivers were good for VR, geography, big landscapes. We used lots of drone shots as well to give you a sense of the landscape work. And he said, he sent me, I was going on holiday and he sent me Tim Butcher's book about the Congo as a little, um, to warm me up for um, a, a virtual reality series on the Congo. Um, this was a, a, a grueling shoot, but again, something we thought would be really interesting for people. Um, we, were, we, we knew with VR we wanted some, some 
memorable and, and positive moments and, and worked hard to find those in the story of the Congo. Um, but it, it, but it, it is a profile of, of, of the country with, with a journey again up the river. And I'm going to show you a tiny bit of a little making of, I'm going to cut early from it because it's, it's, it's quite long, but there's a bit of a making of um, the Congo film. Again, they were shooting stuff for, the, for TV news um, because we'd also um, worked out um, on the Nile series that, you know, for, for good VR you need not only pictures where you can look all around, you need sound that works all around you, which requires special microphones and special sound mixers. Um, and um, one of my team, who was an audio specialist, designed Alistair a special microphone for the um, Congo, um, and Alistair got even more ambitious and managed to make a, a binaural radio documentary out of this as well. So one form of innovation then, then leads to other thinking. So let me give you a sense of what it's like filming um, in the Congo with a 360 camera. It's been a frantic race up the Congo River for the team. <laughs> It took us nearly six weeks, and it was hard. <laughs> oh, and this is Marlow. He came with us all the way. More about him later. It was far better being on the water than in the water. He didn't expect to end up in a river. It's certainly not the easiest place to get around. Searching for gorillas was perhaps the hardest bit. When the torrential rain started three hours in, we thought we'd lost most of the cameras and the cameraman. In the end, it really was worth it. There's a whole TV documentary for you to check out on BBC World News and the iPlayer in the UK. There's another one as well. Out to the silver back. We had to launch the drone by hand because we had a 360 degree camera attached underneath. It meant we could capture the beauty of the country for video, but also in virtual reality. And that's where Marlow comes into it. The round camera with six lenses and cameraman virtual film have created an amazing VR experience, which you can see in a headset. It will blow you away, especially the shots of the gorillas. Check out how to watch it at bbc.com slash virtual reality. Marlow overheated. <laughs> the new technology can be <laughs> Taking to the rapids wasn't in the plan, but it's the only way to see how the Wagania fishermen work close up. Again, it's a great virtual reality experience. It almost came at the cost of Marlow the camera. <laughs> this is the market, and then out there is the river. 
The Democratic Republic of the Congo is a huge and amazingly diverse country. You've seen the various animals that drop these are some kind of smoke things. If only you could smell the market, it looks like some kind of snake. This guy here, he was just a little on a boat. Let's say that several stops just like each other. But a VR cameraman stops to look like a camera or vice versa. Where's the beard then, Bill? You both have been fighting. So I'm going to pause on that because it, oops, oh, there we go. Um, so, so you get a sense, where the intense scenes where you can get the camera right in the middle of the action work really well for VR, you feel they're there, you get a unique sense of the, um, of the country, of what it's like, and, and it feels like you're visiting the country at its best. Um, it's not always possible, the cameras are still are much, much better than they were two years ago, um, and, and that's all got much easier, but it, it, it's still, um, you know, a production challenge, finding the right scenes and doing it on top of a regular news report as well, unless you leave lots of extra time and you have a specialist crew member to really focus on the VR, um, would still be um, impossible, I think. Um, another piece we've done, I've just touched on because it's another journalistic piece, but again shows another um, great application for virtual reality for a report that was um, a treasure of the BBC archive. Um, it's a report um, by Winford Vaughan Thomas, who was on a Lancaster bomber in 1943 as it bombed Berlin. And I don't know whether any of you have heard it, but it is an extraordinary piece of archive, um, absolutely terrifying and chilling to listen to. And so using CGI, um, so uh, we created um, the experience that really brings, puts you in the plane with Winfred Vaughan Thomas and um, his um, intrepid sound recordist who's at the back. Um, and so you get that, that sense of, of flying over, seeing the crew who he's talking about um, and, um, and seeing the bombs drop on the city and um, finally seeing their, their safe return. So it's an extraordinary journey. Again, was a, a really strong... Um, user case um, for sort of virtual reality content that works really well. Um, I'll just play you the, there's a tiny um, trailer for that, just give you a sense of that. So, classrooms of the future, pupils could be fully immersed in the virtual worlds of the past. This is a program called Back in Time for School, where it was used for a future history lesson. This simulation uses original radio recordings taken from a real mission in 1943 making the pupils feel like first-hand witnesses to history. That's so real. Oh, that's a compass. Baby, you got bombs? Yeah, mate. <laughs> it's gotten so close to me. So I wanted to show you that because again it shows its applications potentially for education and um, just how exciting um, that those experiences can be. Um, 
So what makes a good VR story? Well, we really, this is something we really have progressed on since um, I wrote the report in 2017. Um, it, it does need to, being, having a sense of presence in that story has to help you understand that better. So stories where there's some spatial understanding that, that really helps you see, like seeing the dam in um, um, Ethiopia really helped. Um, the sense of geography of the Nile really helped, I think, as well. Um, we, I haven't put empathy here. There was a lot of talk about empathy and VR being an em empathy machine in the earlier um, days of VR. It can do so much more than empathy. Yes, it can evoke empathy, but so can a, a really strong um, um, news report. Um, so it, it, it can give you a heightened sense of emotion, though, and, and, but that can be um, joy as well and, and humour, indeed, as we did in our um, People Just Do Nothing um, VR experience. Um, so I said the story is spatial. Ideally, you should think about your, your viewer. Um, if they are just forgotten about it, it does works less well in VR. So ultimately, with, with um, um, full computer-generated environments where there might be some interactivity, your, 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 um, your viewer might be involved in a, in a more active way. But even in a news piece, techniques like just Alistair looking to the camera, um, acknowledging that you're there and you're with them on the journey helped enormously. So in a, in a strange sort of way, it, it felt more, um, the, the sort of style of reporting and things felt more like um, a conversational style of radio reporting, um, a more, um, uh, a close relationship with the audience than perhaps um, television reporting um, is now. Um, we've always tried to build in something absolutely, um, a, a sort of wow moment in our VR experiences, something you can only do on a headset. Um, that can't be achieved on a, a big screen or um, television, which is why the things I've shown you here you can't possibly appreciate until you get one of these things on, so you have to sort of imagine that you are standing there feeling it all around you. Um, the other thing I've added is great sound. Sound really helps with this. Um, you can make up for a little bit um, about, uh, you know, with, with slightly poorer graphics um, um, by having really great sound. And I do think with the, the attention to detail we've had with the sound for both the Nile and the Congo film is part of why you feel immersed in those environments. But that's quite a lot of production work. It's, it's not daily news production work yet, and it did. It was more like a sort of fast turnaround um, current affairs programme in terms of how much work was required um, still. So um, production costs have definitely come down since two years ago um, because of better cameras and, and, and better, um, more tools in, in some of the editing software. But it's, it's still... Um, a little too much effort um, for, for daily news. Um, so I wanted to just talk through a few um, of the uh, sort of where are we now um, questions at this point. And, and um, um, Jada, who's over there from ABC, saw me on Monday, and he said, you asked um, a couple of questions in your report. Um, how much good VR news content is out there, and um, is, it, is it still experimental? I think it is, really. Two years on, it's still largely experimental. I think we've got, we've got a much better understanding of how to make good, good um, VR content now. But, but um, the distribution and the reaching audience and the monetization is all still very much um, experimental. Will VR news um, convince people to buy headsets? Um, probably not, but, but I still think if you have a headset, um, and I'll talk more about this when we get to the audience research, that strong journalistic content can absolutely be part of a package of content um, that people might um, consume. 
um, without question, and we've got enough evidence on that now. So technological advancements. If you're, if you're doing news and you're filming, yes, yes, the technology's got better. There are more production tools available. It's got a lot easier. When we were first doing early VR news, we were using GoPro rigs with um, six to eight GoPros that then had to be stitched afterwards, huge amounts of post-production. It was slow. Um, the InstaPro camera, which you saw in um, those, the um, Congo film costs about £3,000. The software that stitches it, that's all better. You can create... Um, good 360 films. It still produces enormous amounts of data. You'll have endless hard drives full of data, but you need to be very careful about how much you shoot. Um, and that sort of planning and, and a little bit of storyboarding and thinking about your film, um, which, which um, actually is, is probably um, still quite a challenge to many people who are used to doing fast turnaround um, TV and video news, um, needs to, you need to have that mindset where you think about something and plan your shots in advance. Now we get onto the difficult stuff. <laughs> so it's easier to make, and we know how to make good stuff. But the tech partnerships, um, which frankly drove a lot of the early um, news organizations' attempts into VR. So the New York Times um, partnered with Google for their first VR news app. And then when they did the Daily 360, they'd partnered with Samsung. Um, the Guardian um, partnered with Google Daydream. When that money drew, um, dried up, Unfortunately, those projects pretty much died. Um, the New York Times is doing a little bit, but, but nowhere near as, near as much. So um, a year's tech funding wasn't enough to um, drive this to the point where organizations could take it on, um, had, um, despite the, you know, their attempts to introduce this into their organizations, um, th th there wasn't enough money and it wasn't for long enough to turn it into um, a, a business um, for them. So um, you can say that the teams who did it all learnt a huge amount and have gone on to other innovation things and are often now innovating around augmented reality and other things. So the, the overall impact was good, um, but, it, but it wasn't enough to um, work out those monetization models. Um, which, uh, when, where, again, when I was looking at this, people were hoping that sponsored content and branded content would see them through, and I, I don't think that has been the case yet. Um, next point, better understanding of audiences. Yes, there is more audience research out there, but frankly, the audience for VR is still not big enough to have any really substantial audience research. Um, and I suspect the best audience research lies with those um, headset manufacturers like Oculus, um, who are owned by Facebook, um, and um, they don't share that. So, so there is still a dearth of really solid data um, on, um, on, on VR audiences. Um, multidisciplinary teams. So the, the model that most of the organisations who were really promoting VR were doing was a, a small centralised team then working with the wider organisation. That's what we did at the BBC. It does work. It works really well in um, a legacy broadcaster to, to push change forward and to have a team focused on, on those things. You do need big support from the top to keep that going and you do need long-term funding as well. Um, um, the other news organisations I've spoken to informally since, we've all found that having to bid for funding year on year for these sorts of projects makes the long-term thinking you need um, really, really hard. So um, if you um, um, are running an organisation and want to install such a team, think at least three years, don't just think year by year. Um, 
news organisations need to work together more. I mean, this is one of the things I said um, in, con in connection with, especially with um, this challenge of working with tech partners. Ultimately, um, the sort of fragmented approach of different people drawing different things. Although a nice community broke, um, formed around the creators and people did talk to each other, um, in terms of, of putting any pressure on, um, say, Oculus um, to um, put the needs of news um, first, or even fifth, perhaps, <laughs> um, amongst other content. That's not going to be possible unless news organisations work together and work, it, work out what it is that they want um, from um, these new opportunities. So it's painful and it's boring to do, and it means organising um, working groups and things like that, but ultimately I think that would be necessary to um, exert some influence over um, third-party platforms. Um, Another thing I pondered over was, was there really, for news organisations, an early mover advantage in getting in very early with this stuff, as the New York Times have done? Um, and again, just my reflection on that is that, yes, in, in terms of innovation credentials, um, the New York Times and Sky have done very well out of promoting the early VR and um, other te technological things that they've taken on very early. Um, whether that really um, puts you, whether you needed to do that to have a foot in the VR market um, so early, I think is still open to question. Um, it's going to be slow and it's going to take a long time for VR to, de to develop um, a, a big audience. Um, and, and a lot of the people that went in very early have, have pretty much stepped aside and are waiting until that matures, including um, to some extent the BBC, um, which is still investing. Um, in R&D and engineering research around VR and is obviously um, following it very closely but, but my team um, um, announced that it was closing earlier this year because we've, we've got where we can in terms of making great VR content but we do need that audience and that market to um, advance further before we can um, achieve a great, a great deal further. Um, so the last thing I wanted to finish on was the failure of the early home market. So certainly back in 2017, although I question this, the assumption that people were working to was that within five years there would be a substantial home market and all those early graphs and things that were done of showing the uptake of VR were um, suggesting that. We, we did not believe that in the BBC. We did our own number crunching and thought it would take longer than that. But one interesting thing that has happened um, in the last 18 months or so in terms of industry thinking is a, is a very clear pivot away from the home market towards location-based experiences. So that includes um, Star Wars void games in big shopping malls and very expensive high-end experiences that are happening in America run by things like Dreamscape. That means VR in theme parks. Um, but what does that mean for news? Well... We had to think about this about um, a year ago when we realised that the home market was going to take longer. And we thought for a public service broadcaster, libraries might be the perfect partner um, to take VR to audiences so that they could experience um, some of the wonders of, of virtual reality. And last November, we did a very small pilot in, in a few libraries. Um, and we used these um, Go headsets, and we managed to create some materials for librarians to, to use them. Um, we know that in um, there'd been a library trial in California using one of the um, more powerful headsets, the HTC Vive, and that, that had proved very difficult because of the amount of computer support required, and that 
raise the cost. So, so for the BBC, the problem with VR events is the cost of staffing, the cost of marketing, and the cost of locations that are associated with that. Whereas libraries are open to their local community, um, have an audience that um, is, is very varied. People go there to use computers and to use um, um, tech as well as um, still <coughs> borrow books. Um, librarians can run events. They've got the right sort of space. So it seemed our hunch was this might work. And so this summer, we ran a, a library trial. We were originally aiming at um, 150 libraries. We got to, and now we keep counting them up, and it was 175. So I'm just going to play you a short film about what happened this summer. I should say we took three pieces of content, and I'll tell you more about that afterwards. The Congo piece, the Berlin Blit piece, and um, a um, Doctor Who adventure, which was our drama, interactive, immersive drama piece. So here you go, here's what happened. Where's my mouse gone? There we go. It was really cool. I've never tried VR before. It, it was just mind blowing, to be honest. I'm just blown away by what kind of way I'm transported to. delighted with this and inadvertently through one innovation project we, we kind of stumbled on something else which is um, a huge appetite at a local level for really um, compelling events and things in, 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 in local communities. Um, we did um, extensive research, we had um, about 1,200 questionnaires and we also followed it up with some um, qual research afterwards. The, the purpose of the qual research was it was very focused on memorability because um, going back to that original BBC mission, Inform, Educate, Entertain, um, part of our purpose was to understand 
could something um, viewed through a headset be more powerful um, and more memorable than um, watching um, video on your phone? And um, we really think it can. Our audience research department have never seen such positive research. Um, a couple of the interviewees, I think they're given £10, wanted it donated to their library. Um, and so it was overwhelmingly um, positive. And people described... Um, two months after the Congo film, the feeling of standing on Kinshasa Station, and they remembered it. And most impressively, um, I've got the figure there, 70% said they wanted to find out more about Africa after watching the Congo film. Um, and it's so there's something there. It taps into something very powerful, um, but there is a real problem um, getting it out to audiences and um, understanding that, that distribution mechanism. But it's exciting to have created that content that's good enough. I think lessons learned from 2017. Um, if we'd taken some of the content that was available in 2017 to libraries, this would not have worked. The content we took to them was of sufficient standard and um, was compelling enough for us to be absolutely convinced that they would um, enjoy it and, and would really engage with it. And so perhaps, again, one of the lessons from this VR thing is um, a bit like that sort of minimum viable, viable product approach to um, um, getting software out. Um, it, it probably doesn't work with content. Hold your content back until it's good enough to um, represent your brand, I would say. Um, so the other thing about these um, out-of-home location-based things is, of course, many of these um, friction points that we'd established early on in our research just go away because you're in a comfortable environment in a library, someone's helping you, you've been directed to something really good to watch. And so, again, um, people, people leave feeling excited um, and wanting more. And so before I finish, I just want to very quickly just mention the other sort of 360 video. So one of the, one of the things that was talked about a lot when, um, again, I was doing the report in 2017, was that 360 video viewed on your browser like this is a gateway to VR. Well, I was sceptical about that because it is a very, very different experience from watching something in a headset. And actually, what we've learned over the last two years in the BBC, um, um, and I give you one of these sheets that we provided for people in news to try and educate them about what works as 360, is we do now think sometimes short 360 videos, uh, no more than a minute long and very compelling first shot um, that complies with all the rules of social video um, can be really good for certain things. And our most, um, um, I mean, our, our sort of biggest hit recently in terms of getting everything right was um, a short 360 um, film we released after the Notre Dame fire, about three days after. Somebody had come to the BBC who just shot, just before the fire, some really beautiful footage of the cathedral, including some drone footage. Um, and Stephen Beckett on my, my team spent um, half a day um, cutting some, putting some graphics on it, so turning it essentially into a visual journalism explainer with moving video. Um, that was um, put on the front page of the news website and on YouTube and did, did very well. Um, and a, a previous piece that um, we, would, we would do in a different way now would be much shorter, but it was a, a 360 video from CERN um, inside the Large Hadron Collider. And it's also got over a million views. So, so those 360 videos that have been put out on YouTube um, in the early days in news generally didn't do that well. But, but with the right timing and, um, and, and with a purpose and a reason why you would need 360, um, they can be 
um, good, but they are very, very different from what works in a headset. They need to be fast and, and really um, push knowledge to an audience very, very quickly. So just before I stop and answer questions, um, I just wanted to end with some final advice, really, um, from, from some takeaways from what we've done. One is always try and see the, the bigger picture. Um, that means you need to look beyond news when you're innovating and, and finding ideas for new forms of content, actually working across drama and comedy and things in terms of coming up with news ways of storytelling um, really helped us understand how to make good VR. Whereas if we had just worked with TV news reporters who were used to doing it in one particular way, I don't think we would have changed the style and tone of reporting and come up with a, a different way of doing it. Um, I like to think the approach we did for VR storytelling actually might apply back to some other forms of video news and um, they could learn a trick from us too. Um, and again, in terms of the bigger picture, you need to understand wider audience habits, what other leisure activities they're doing, what you're competing against with new technology to be able to um, understand how this might fit into their lives. Um, if you are going to do innovation in the newsroom, you need to really think about why you're doing it, who's it for, um, what, what it's going to achieve. Um, small random projects in VR across the BBC achieved very little, but whereas when we thought about um, doing a series in advance and really planned how we were going to ensure that had impact over the next few months ahead, it, it provided a, a, a much um, better model. So in all our projects, we try to um, keep that budget um, for after the production. And I actually had somebody on my team who was, um, um, we called her the impact producer, but she was thinking about once we got through the total nightmare of production and finished a project and we were exhausted, she was thinking about what next, what to do with that. And that's what really led to all the um, innovative work with public libraries. I mentioned this before, I'm going to say it again, multidisciplinary multidisciplinary teams work and they're the way to innovate like this but they need long-term investment and championing at a senior level um, and where are we now it is exciting we know there's something there but there's a little bit of a waiting game going on for VR um, we can create great um, VR for events and I hope that will continue but in terms of this dream where everyone will be able to um, sit in their sitting room and be transported to um, Kabul or um, Kurdistan, we're a little way off um, that truly happening. But, but I still think it could happen. And I, as I walked through Oxford today, I was thinking, when I um, started as an undergraduate at Oxford in 1990, the very idea that I could have watched television on my phone, that I could have phoned my mum more than once a week other than from a payphone with a coin um, seemed um, quite far-fetched. Um, things will change and um, at a recent talk at the BBC, Bill Gates talked about how immersive media is completely going to change the way we consume media in the future. It is just all going to take time and VR, XR, AR, all these things will converge into something we don't understand quite what that is right now. But all these attempts to understand storytelling and understand new ways of working will ultimately um, deliver. Thank you. Thank you very much.